job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Today on Notably Disney, I am excited to welcome back to the show author David Bossard. You may recall that he's been on several episodes, including when we reviewed his 3D Disneyland book and Remembering Roy E. Disney. He is the author of an exciting forthcoming title later this fall called Claude Coates, Walt Disney's Imagineer, The Making of Disneyland from Toad Hall to the Haunted Mansion and Beyond. This is a most impressive book um, as I had an advanced copy and was really excited to be able to check it out and take in all of the amazing contributions by Claude Coates, who of course uh, was one of the principal individuals in Walt Disney Imagineering and even before that had quite an illustrious career in Disney animation. Uh, So this title really honors Claude's life his many different contributions to the company, particularly in Imagineering from Disneyland's inception to uh, the end of the 1960s. It really focuses on those first 15 years of the the parks in particular, um, because of course he would later be a major force in Walt Disney World as well. Um, And in addition to Dave, I'm also really excited to bring on first-time guest Alan Coates, uh, who, as you may imagine, uh, based on that last name, is in fact Claude's son, uh, who's an Imagineer himself, and uh, and you'll learn a little bit more about Alan and his work with Dave on this book, um, as Alan actually um, was a, a driving force behind it and Uh, offered many of the really rich materials that you'll see in the book in terms of the photos and pieces of concept artwork and and just designs that his father crafted. So I think you'll really enjoy this interview with both Dave and Alan. So let's get right into it. Accomplished Disney author David Bossert has chronicled the lives of famous Disney figures in his previous titles, uh, including executive Roy E. Disney, and furniture designer and architect Ken Weber. In his latest book, Dave uncovers the story of Disney legend and Imagineer, 
Todd Coates, originally known as a gifted animator and later a principal force behind the art direction and show design and so much more for attractions, including Pirates of the Caribbean, It's a Small World, Alice in Wonderland, and Adventure Through Inner Space, among numerous others. And after much development and anticipation, Claude Coates, Walt Disney's Imagineer, the making of Disneyland from Toad Hall to the Haunted Mansion and beyond, debuts this fall. So joining me on Notably Disney today are Dave Bosser, as well as Disney Imagineer Alan Coates, Claude's son, who provided the book's preface and was a real pivotal force in the book's development. So I have read an advanced copy of this book, and let me tell you listeners, this is an essential purchase and a read for your Disney nonfiction collection. Um, when I speak extremely favorably about a book, it's because it's very much true. Um, I am thrilled to see this being released, and, and I'm thrilled to once again welcome you, Dave, back to Notably Disney, and welcome you, Alan, for the first time. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you, uh, Fred. Well, we have a lot to cover today, and I do want to provide listeners with a little bit of context to who you are, Alan, in case they're maybe unfamiliar, um, and because you're new to the podcast. Could you maybe briefly talk about your role and contributions to Walt Disney Imagineering? Well, let me start off with my greatest role, and that was Alligator Al on the Jungle Cruise. Since that movie is coming out and the attraction has been totally renovated in both parks, I thought I should mention that. That was the best job I ever had with Disney, really. Uh, Although Imagineering was, was wonderful and working with my father side by side and with Walt Disney still being there with us. That's that puts me back a ways, but uh, it was um, it was really a, a, an honor, and I was fortunate, really, to be in that position and do, uh, be able to do what I did. Well, I, uh, Alligator Al, I mean, I would have loved to be um, on one of those trips around around the world famous Jungle Cruise. How how yeah. long were you in that role there, Alan? Well, I was there about three years, but it wasn't full time. I was still going to uh, a cinema school at the University of Southern California. So I would work summers and holidays and grad nights and special parties and, and that sort of thing. So it was actually good. I got to get away from the jungle and then come back uh, and, and uh, pick up the gun again, which, of course, is not allowed and uh, <laughs> uh, go back onto the river. So it was it was really a wonderful experience. Could you maybe just uh, very briefly summarize what some of your um, biggest roles were within Disney Imagineering, just so uh, so we all can have context of, of what your uh, greatest skills, stats, and strengths have been? Well, in Imagineering, my, my first, of course, my mentor was my father, of course, but it was my mentor was also Yale Gracie. And I started with him in, Imag- in Illusioneering uh, when we were building Florida or the Magic Kingdom in Florida. And my first assignment there was to do the lighting design for It's a Small World. Now that was a big, big attraction. It was the biggest show building in Florida at the park there. And so I was given that job uh, because Yale ended up in the hospital. So he said, Alan, you're gonna have to do it on your own. So uh, that was my first major illusionary 
position was lighting design. And we, the four of us, Yale, Gracie, and Bud Martin, and Larry Paget, the four of us did all of the lighting for that park. 43 attractions, the castle, exterior lighting, and the rivers of America and the jungle. It was a huge job for the four of us. We didn't get much sleep. <laughs> but uh, after that, I worked for Marty Sklar in uh, show development for Epcot. And I was a, a script writer. I came up with ideas for outlines for uh, uh, all of the pavilions, primarily for energy and uh, the land pavilion. And, uh, and I not only worked in that capacity at Imagineering, but also at the studio for the television series. So I really had an opportunity to move around in the company quite a bit and see how things got done. So it was a, it was a great time for me. Well, one, one thing that really stands out to me among something you said in terms of your role in lighting and lighting design and how lighting creates mood and tone. And that's a parallel that I, I really see very saliently between um, what you and your colleagues did for the attractions and also what your father contributed to artwork and, and show design and creating a sense of tone and, and feeling based on the environments that you occupy. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point, uh, Brett, because um, I had the obligation of lighting Mary Blair's characters and sets. And I, so I said, I really have to do this right. I had background in theatrical lighting. So I, I pretty much knew what had to be done. And I had some roadblocks along the way, but uh, with, a, with a wonderful crew of electricians and stagehands, it took us six weeks to light that one attraction. It was so big. It was too big. The, the version at, at, at the New York World's Fair and at Disneyland, in my opinion, are better versions. They're small world, you know? They're not overpowering as the, everything in Florida was bigger. So, uh, but that, your point is very good that I had to bring a mood into the lighting and uh, do justice to Mary's characters and sets. So I think I, I did that. No one sent me back to California. So I guess it went over okay. Absolutely. Well, I, I would love to kind of dive into um, this amazing new book. And I know its backstory um, is, at a foundational level, and I'd love to explore it further with both of you, um, is, is very rich and, and took a, a lot of time. Um, Dave and Alan, I know that you launched a crowdfunding campaign to support its effort um, a couple, at least a couple of years ago. Um, and I also recall in the acknowledgement section of the book about just the difficulty in pitching a book about Claude Coates. And I guess I'm wondering in terms of maybe a twofold question, one, the origins of the book, but, but also in tandem, why was this a, a difficult book to, to pitch to publishers? Well, I, you know, I'll tell you the, uh, the, the, the beginnings of this really uh, started probably four or five years ago because Alan and I were both at a conference and didn't know each other. Um, I was walking into the conference. Alan was coming out he saw my name badge 
And he said, Dave Bossert, I just bought your Dolly and Disney book at Barnes and Noble. And I was like, wow, my book is at Barnes and Noble, you know, and I just caught his name on his name badge and it said Alan Coates. And, and he walked by and I kept going into the conference and I thought to myself, that's he's got to be related to Claude Coates. And so uh, at the morning break of, in the conference, I went to track him down. And unfortunately, he had gone home ill. He wasn't feeling well, and so he left. And I talked to a mutual friend of ours, uh, you know, asking where he was, and I wanted to talk to him. And and he put us together via email. And Alan, uh, Alan and I then arranged to have lunch, uh, which we did at the Talleyrand in Burbank. And uh, it was at that lunch that I had the opportunity to, to sort of talk to Alan and let him know that I knew his father, Claude. When I was first starting at the studio, I, I think I was only there a year and a half, two years. Uh, they moved the animation department off the studio lot into a little warehouse building across the street from Imagineering. And so here I am just starting my career and Claude was at the end of his career. And we probably overlapped by about 18 months or so. Uh, and when we, we moved into this new building, I went across the street to the commissary every morning for a little breakfast. And uh, that's where I met Claude. And I wound up uh, chatting with him once, twice, three times a week. It, it varied uh, for probably almost 18 months before he retired and uh, just an incredibly nice guy, wealth of information, uh, very forthcoming, generous with his time. Uh, and, and the storytelling was amazing. And he uh, was just uh, an incredible person. And I just wanted to convey that to Alan uh, that I had had talked to his father quite often over that period of time. And, um, and by the end of the, the, the lunch, Alan looked at me and said, would you be interested in writing a book about my father? <laughs> and, uh, and I, of course I said, yes. And I thought it would be sort of a slam dunk. I mean, you know, Claude Coates, he was with the company for 54 years. He had two distinct careers, 20 years as a, a background painter, color stylist, designer in the animation department, and, and then another 34 years as uh, one of the original Imagineers. Well, I mean, he was, he was one of the key guys that worked with Walt Disney on the building of Disneyland. And, um, and and Tom Morris, uh, who's an Imagineer, uh, called it the golden age of Disneyland, that first 15 years, um, where a lot of these iconic attractions were, were conceived and installed in the park. And, um, and, and so, you know, Alan and I collaborated and worked on a book proposal and, and we pitched it and it got turned down. And then we retooled the book proposal and we pitched it again and it got rejected. And what we were hearing was nobody knows who Claude Coates is. And, and the sad fact about the, the book publishing business is that unless there's this hunch or inkling that it's going to sell 50,000, 100,000 or a million copies, um, you know, it becomes very, very difficult uh, to, to get your foot in the door. 
Uh, and um, that's what we started experiencing because in the book industry, it's the sales force that's giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down on what books are being made, you know, unless it's a celebrity, you know, tome. Uh, uh, but beyond that, you know, it's the salespeople and the salespeople were like, who's Claude Coates? We don't know who Claude, how, how do we sell this book? You know? And so, um, you know, we just decided, well, you know, I, I, I experienced it with the Chem Weber book because, you know, they looked at it as a niche topic. And I just said, well, you know what, I'm just going to do it anyway. It was my love letter to the furniture. I'm still, as, as I talk with you, Brett, I am sitting at an original 1939 Chem Weber animation desk. Uh, and it does have a soul. And, you know, and it is uh, like an old shoe to me. And I've been sitting at it now for, you know, going on, for, you know, well into four decades. Uh, and so, you know, you, you just have to forge ahead and do these things and have faith that there's an audience out there. And so we decided, you know what, let's pre-sell the book. And that's what the that, that's what the crowdfunding campaign was, was people, you know, have faith in us. You know, I had a track record with a number of books and we were, we were doing a book on a, uh, what we considered to be a titan uh, of Imagineering and one of the original guys and, you know, one of the, the founders, if you will, of uh, Disneyland. And, uh, you know, we, we, we just set out to do the book ourselves. And, and we realized, by the way, with the campaign, that there was an audience because we had a lot of people come out of the woodwork and pre-order the book and they were okay waiting two years to get it. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's, that's really it in a nutshell. Uh, we think, you know, we're very proud of this book. Uh, you've, you've obviously had a chance to read an advanced copy of it. And, uh, and I, I think that it's going to be very enlightening. We, we actually uh, sent the manuscript around to um, a half a dozen or so people, some of, some of whom were Imagineers, former Imagineers who had worked with Claude. Uh, and we got some incredible reactions. I mean, people came back and said to us, you know, that, that uh, they knew Claude, they had worked with Claude and boy, they had learned some stuff in this book that they had no idea about, including Tony Baxter, who, you know, he's a Disney legend. He was an Imagineer for 50 years. Uh, he wrote the foreword to the book, but he was also mentored by Claude Coates. And so he knew Claude very, very well. And he even was surprised at some of the uh, little stories and bits and pieces that we were able to put into the book. It's an amazing journey to, to hear how uh, a chance encounter could lead to the creation of a, a title like this several years later. And, and, and what a testament to, to your father, Alan, where there was just such interest in folks like pre-ordering this book before, you know, years out. Um, and I'm, I'm not surprised by it, given, as you were saying, Dave, one of the pioneers in Imagineering. And for someone like me as a, as a connoisseur of Disney, when I think of like the, among the five, 10 most notable individuals in, in Disney Imagineering, Claude certainly comes to mind alongside Mark Davis or Mary Blair and, and many others. And for me as a reader, what, what, as I was going through it, and I want to dive into it, but 
there were such parallels to the book that you might see on my bookshelf a little bit before me, which is the Mark Davis book that debuted a couple of years ago that chronicled his career in Imagineering with beautiful artwork, imagery, and prose, and, and really covering everything. And that's what this book felt like for me, too, as a, as a reader in, in giving such breadth and, um, and also a ton of depth. So um, I would love to know in terms of your process as you're developing this book. And what I'm gleaning is that it was very much a, a joint effort in, in many ways. Could you talk about just the notion of covering so many different facets and making those decisions as far as, okay, what, what attractions, what experiences are going to get their own chapter? What is worth highlighting? I know Dave, you mentioned the first 15 years of, of uh, Disney Imagineering, Disneyland, I should say, being like a golden age and a lot, and most of that is covered um, very clearly here. But can you talk about fair, making those kind of executive decisions in terms of what is going to get due attention? Well, you know, I think I think Alan and I had a lot of conversations, but you know, when when you're talking about Claude Coates and a 54 year career, uh, you really can break it down into three chunks, if you will. Uh, the first 20 years is animation. I mean, you could do an entire book on just his animation career. Um, you know, from uh, uh, you know. Uh, starting out in the background department as an assistant and painting shingles on the roof of a house for a short to, you know, doing the old mill and the wishing well sequence in Snow White, Geppetto's workshop in Pinocchio. I mean, he, you know, to this day, uh, even the background painters and designers in the industry look to him as one of the the major influences and, you know and I still regard Claude's uh, background work in Pinocchio as being some of the finest in uh, animated uh, film history uh, period uh, so you know again you could do a book on on animation you could do a book on Disneyland, which is what we chose to do. And then you could do another book on Walt Disney World, Paris, Tokyo, uh, because he was involved in all of those parks. And he was, you know, a key person in translating a lot of his iconic attractions from Disneyland down to um, Disney World and some of the other parks uh, that were opening up uh, towards the end of his career. So, and Alan, I don't know if you want to add any more to that, but, uh, you know, that we, we kind of felt like we had to focus this book and to focus on that first 15 years of Disneyland seemed like a, a natural place to be. Well, I will add that uh, we, we back away from Disneyland in the middle of the book. Dad had a significant impact on the four Disney pavilions at the New York World's Fair, the 1964-65 World's Fair. So, that gives a breather, if you want to put it that way, and a, a scope to the book where we go into other areas where my father was involved. Uh, uh, his trip to NASA during the, uh, the final stages of the, of the preparation to, for the moon flight and uh, for a possible television program and his trips to uh, Japan for the Air Force as part of the Air Force art uh, uh, program that they had going in the early 60s. So the book expands quite a bit on just those first 15 years of Disneyland. My father was a, was a pretty busy fellow for uh, many, uh, many other uh, 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 projects 
beyond just Disneyland. You know, and I, I'd add on to that, Brett, that, um, uh, you know, him being involved with the New York World's Fair on those pavilions, uh, that that really was a direct impact on uh, Disneyland as well, because some of those attractions then or parts of those attractions would then make their way down to Disneyland as well. Um, and uh, the Air Force uh, chapter where he becomes an official artist of the United States Air Force, um, that that was a chapter that we actually had a discussion about should that be in or shouldn't it be in this book and and i argued for it by the way uh because i felt as though those kinds of experiences having having been at the animation uh department and work for the company for for decades myself those experiences all filter through your imagination through your mind on other projects you're working on, you know? Uh, and we had no doubt that uh, uh, the, uh, the trip to NASA certainly had an impact on aspects of Tomorrowland uh, and, uh, and, and just uh, the, the paintings that he produced for the Air Force. Again, it allowed him to keep his hand in the painting aspect of things uh, even though he wasn't painting backgrounds any longer, uh, he still it still shows he had a love for painting. The facility that Claude had in, in so many different aspects of artistry really came across in, in the book. And what you were just saying there about the New York World's Fair, that was one of my favorite sections because I, I find that to be such a um, touchstone of of. Disney Imagineering um, in terms of obviously the many of the attractions materializing in the parks uh, in Disneyland and, and even Walt Disney World. But one tidbit that I picked up, which was really fascinating was just the notion of Claude really developing the rotating theater concept for Science Land, which was ultimately didn't come to fruition, but later adapted for Carousel of Progress, just showing that idea of that notion of good ideas never die. But um, I mean, Alan, your father was such a pivotal part of, of so many aspects of those pavilions, the primeval world theme or aspects, the dinosaurs and Ford's Magic High, uh, Skyway, I should say, um, ending up uh, in Disneyland off the railroad. It's just amazing in terms of um, your father's reach across these different spaces. Yes, that World's Fair was very important in bringing technology, people moving, audio animatronics, they were honed and developed for those four pavilions at the World's Fair. And, uh, and much of that came back to Disneyland. So it was a, a great, Walt wanted to have his people given that experience to uh, test another audience on the East Coast because he was of course thinking about Florida. So uh, that all worked out very well for uh, the advancement of Imagineering in the 60s. Absolutely. I'd love for you, Alan, to, to talk a little bit about the process of curating, uh, curating not only information, but also photos of your father and his family and his work, and also his personal collection of artwork, because that's very much on full display in the book. And I'd love for you to talk maybe how, how you gathered that and ultimately, Dave and Alan, your process of, of working together and determining, okay, what imagery would be incorporated in the book? 
the, the, the Alan, before you say anything, one of the things I did want to mention is that this book could not have been done without Alan and the cooperation of the Coates family. And that, that was really a key here. So I, I just want to make, make sure the audience is clear on that, that, you know, I, I, it's not me working in a vacuum writing. It, it's, it's me writing and sending what I'm writing to Alan and getting notes from him and jarring his memory and saying, Hey, there's this great story and things like that. So there, this was a, pro, a very much a back and forth process, a collaborative process, uh, but it couldn't have been done without the family and without Alan. Well, of course, I was, Dave interviewed me extensively too, but uh, it, it took a lot of digging. I, I'm a sort of a Disney pack rat. I, I go back to Disneyland before it even opened. So I collected so much cool stuff that goes back so far that I, that I haven't done a very good job of archiving. So it took a lot of digging. Uh, at home in my office and in, in uh, storage units with my family to cobble together what I thought was the significant elements that I needed to get to Dave, pictures and documents and photographs and all of the artwork that spread around the family. Um, if I didn't have the actual art, I had it digitized or, or photographed so that we could have a high res image of a sample of his best personal art at the end of the book. And there's much of his Disney concept art in the book as well that I had. So, uh, you know, Dave was, <laughs> I guess, fortunate to see me that day that I would have, I'd be the person if he was going to do a book on my father to have uh, all of that material at hand and available to him. Yeah. And, and by the way, I, you know, it never crossed my mind that I would uh, uh, do a book on Claude. Um, I, I really just wanted to talk to Alan that day and say, Hey, I knew your dad and he was a really cool guy and, and just convey a few stories to him. Um, but you know, it was almost serendipitous, uh, how, how it all came together. And, uh, and, and I revere, uh, uh, Claude, um, I liked him as a human being. I wish I had known him uh, sooner and better. Uh, but uh, the bit of time that I did get to spend with him, uh, you know, are fond memories for me uh, of the early part of my career. And, um, you know, being able to have the honor of uh, doing this book to celebrate a guy like this, and especially after being told nobody knows who he is, you know, that's, well, you got to do the book so people know more about him, you know, and he made a significant contribution to Disneyland, significant. I mean, Walt Disney trusted Claude. He was, he was near a confidant uh, 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 Claude was for, for Walt Disney and, uh, and Walt liked them, uh, and treated them with respect and knew, you know, Walt was a great casting director. He knew that he could push people into new areas that they themselves may not have been sure that they could do, but they were able to reach deep down inside and do it. You know, and and that's, you know, that's the beauty uh, of telling this story. Along the, those lines, Dave, 
what what comes to mind when you say that was uh, I believe it was within the pirates chapter and uh, referring to basically Walt entrusting Claude with the notion of overseeing pirates and being his eyes and ears. That was, I, I found that notion to be very symbolic because certainly pirates debuted after Walt's death, but he was very heavily involved in that. And of course, Alan, your father being such an instrumental force on the attraction, but for, for that, they, when you're saying in terms of how Walt viewed and, and treated Claude, that particular anecdote really resonates. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, we wanted to put in some of these lesser known stories. I mean, there's a terrific story with uh, Rainbow Caverns, uh, where uh, Hans Haber, the rocket scientist, uh, told, told Claude it was impossible what he was doing to, to have these separate colors uh, uh, you know, uh, in a waterfall, a rainbow waterfall, uh, and, and that, you know, it would last five minutes before the colors all mixed together and turned to mud. Uh, and, and, and for, for Claude to convey that to Walt and for Walt to famous, you know, the famous quote, you know, it's kind of fun to do the impossible. Um, you know, that, that's where that quote came from. That was a quote to, Claude. Uh, and, and you can just picture Walt saying it with a little bit of a smirk on his face, you know, like, go figure it out. <laughs> that notion of, of Walt pushing people to, to do really incredible things uh, really felt was uh, pervasive throughout the book. And one chapter that I particularly enjoyed was adventure through inner space. That was a very experimental attraction. It debuted um, during the mid sixties. There was obviously an increasing focus on, on science. And what, what I appreciated about this chapter and I haven't seen quite as saliently in, in other books covering Disneyland is the notion of just giving a richness to an attraction that's been long extinct, but very much revered. Can you talk about that? Dave, in, in terms of being able to gather knowledge about an attraction that hasn't been documented as much and, and certainly Claude's role on that attraction. Yeah, you know, I think one of the one of the interesting things about that particular attraction, uh, Adventure Through Inner Space, was that it no longer exists. So I really did want to give as much of a description of it as possible. Uh, but also, it's interesting to look at that project that Claude's working on and the Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates of the Caribbean is super detailed. There's like 60 audio animatronics. There, there's all this atmospheric stuff going on, all kinds of special effects, the fire in the Spanish town, all of this, you know, super detailed storytelling. And then you've got the adventure through inner space, which is like sending people into a dark space where you're using audio uh, and just hints of shapes and lighting and, uh, you know, almost minimalist uh, in comparison to, uh, it really was minimalist in comparison to the Pirates of the Caribbean. 
so I, I really tried to convey that and to give people a sense, uh, you know, even quoting some of the original um, uh, uh, audio narration, um, uh, th you know, throughout that chapter. So it really gave, gave people a sense of what that ride was or that attraction was all about because, uh, I mean, again, I, I never went on it. I, you know, I was, I think I was, you know, seven years old when it opened and I was in New York and I never went to Disneyland until 1980. So. <laughs> you mentioned in terms of with that chapter and also other chapters to incorporating some of that narration um, to really provide that sense of storytelling. So we as readers basically take us a, a walk through each of these attractions. Some still existing, some not. And I felt like it, it allowed me to really become just encapsulated in the environment and then complemented by just some of the beautiful um, concept artwork and, and photographs that I've never seen before. And I think that's what's also important about a book like this. And you referred to it earlier in terms of gathering um, these rare photos. This doesn't stock photos that you can find in, in other spaces. There's a lot of um, rich imagery that is very much distinct and really helps push this uh, narrative of whatever the particular chapter is focusing on. So I see that as a, as a strength and for, particularly for inner space where I haven't seen much in the way of photographs of like inside the attraction, it, it really allowed for that. Yeah, and, and, and you know, both, both Alan and I were, look, when, whenever I've worked on a book project, I want to bring new material to the table. I, I want the reader to see new things. Um, you know, I think, I think a lot of people are tired of seeing the same images over and over again, which, which pro, really proliferate uh, in, in a lot of other books out there. And I, I don't want to knock those books, but I, I feel as though I want to dig deeper. I want to try and find, you know, those little gems that, you know, you don't normally see. And, you know, looking and reaching out to photographers and uh, other resources, um, we were able to come up with, I think, some some pretty neat stuff. Sure. And again, you know, a lot of those early photographs of Alan and uh, Alan's uh, of Alan's father and his mother, uh, you know, again, uh, there's some really neat things in there, you know, uh, in that opening chapter where I, I sort of take us from where Claude came from and his education and, you know, into the Disney studios and up to the point when Walt puts him to work on uh, uh, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of material in that chapter uh, that, you know, it's, it's someday could get really expanded upon. Uh, you know, if, if we're just going to cover his animation career, uh, but, uh, you know, it, it does give, I think, a great overview to the reader. Yes, and, and I would add to um, what really came across was in terms of Claude's initial engagement in the development of Disneyland, many, uh, many of his roles um, entailed translating the artwork and feeling of some of the classic Disney animated films to the Fantasyland attractions. You referred to Mr. Toad's Wild Ride earlier there, um, Dave, but but also Alice in Wonderland um, and um, the feeling of that. And I think one of the 
most striking um, images that I came across was just the um, the ride vehicles themselves, the the caterpillars, and in terms of seeing um, basically the um, was it like the the patent for it, which was kind of cool. Yeah, that that that's the U.S. patent, right, Alan? Yeah, originally Dad had designed that vehicle as as the marching uh, soldier cards from Alice in Wonderland, and it was very angular. And uh, and Walt said, no, nah, he didn't. Walt didn't really like it. He said, do a caterpillar. So Claude drew that up. He drew the concept for it, and uh, and that's the way the vehicle looks today, as it originally was done in 1958. And it's organic. It fits. It, Walt is almost always right. And it's organic. It fits down the rabbit hole better than a stack of cards would. But uh, dad was in his office later and the legal department came around and said, uh, Claude, you, you got to take out a patent on that vehicle. And Claude said, well, I, I didn't, that was Walt's idea. They said, yeah, but you drew it up. It's, it's your version and you have to have the patent office give you a patent on that. So he got it, he got the patent. And he was proud of that. Then legal came around to his office again later and said, Claude, we want the patent, here's 10 bucks. <laughs> and my father should have said, I'm keeping it. <laughs> but he was such a nice guy, you know? So he said, okay, he took the money and gave him the patent, but they let me keep the original. And so, uh, that's a treasure that I have in my archive. And, and, and those are those are those little backstories that a lot of people don't realize, uh, you know, even just talking about the fact that um, uh, he originally designed the ride vehicle as the uh, soldier cards uh, from Alice in Wonderland uh, and uh, the fact that it changed to a caterpillar. It gives insight to the reader in how these attractions develop. Uh, and how they develop over time and the iterations that you go through and the things you're trying and, and you know, uh, to get discarded. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, uh, when uh, Claude developed uh, the revolving theater um, where the audience moves around a center stage, um, you know, he, he developed that for science land. Uh, but it got dusted off and used for the GE uh, Carousel of Progress. Uh, and, and, and that's, you know, a repeating theme throughout the Disney uh, universe, uh, you know, where things were developed and cast aside and then, you know, uh, resurrected. Um, a great example of that is Snow Queen. Uh, was being developed in the 1940s and it was put aside and then it was picked up again in the early 2000s and developed a little bit and then put aside and then it was picked up uh, again and it became frozen. So, you know, ideas uh, at the Disney company uh, are there uh, if, if there's people who remember them. Uh, the, the ideas that are there uh, can get dusted off decades later and turned into, you know, billion dollar properties. Uh, and it's just really knowing where to find uh, those little gems and, uh, and, and the new take on it uh, uh, that, that somebody can give it. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. Um, 
one other point that I'd like to focus on, um, there's so many, but one that I'd love to really honor is not only what is illustrated very clearly in the book is Claude's innovations and his talent and all these contributions, but also his character. And Alan, in the preface, you mentioned your father's humility. Can you talk about some, and, and Dave too, please chime in as well, but Alan, from the standpoint of, of being his son and, and someone you looked up to and, and, and saw contribute to the Walt Disney Company, talk about how, who he was as a person in terms of how he clearly illustrated mentorship and decency. Well, he was, um... He was soft-spoken. He was and a good listener and a very uh, approachable. And uh, in fact, uh, sometimes people were even intimidated. Uh, new people would walk by his office and finally say, do you think Claude Coates would talk to me? Uh, and of course he would. And they'd say, yeah, just walk. And he'd say, hey, yeah, come on in. Let me show you what I'm working on. He was very open to young people and, uh, and certainly talented in what he did on his own. I mean, Marty Sklar said there's no one ever who could lay out an attraction like Claude Coates. He had it in his head instantly uh, how, you know, the, the, the first thing he'd do is build a little quarter inch model so he could see the space. How much space do I have to tell the story? Then he'd call Mapo, who does the manufacturing for, for WED, WED at the time. And he'd say, what is the radius? How much story can I get into this space? How tight a turn can the vehicle, whatever it is, a hanging vehicle, a ride vehicle, an omnimover, a boat, he needed to know that. And once he had that in place, he could sit down in a, in a morning and lay out an attraction that fast and pretty much show people, if Walt came into the office, he'd say, here's what I got, Walt. Here's the space, here's the layout of the track. I think we can tell the story. It always comes down to storytelling, right? And that's what he was, he just, he just in, in, had an intuition about being able to do that immediately. And it, uh, it just worked out great for him. To uh, cue off of Alan here, um, uh, the person that I met in Claude Coates was, was a, uh, a real dapper dresser. I mean, he was always sharp looking he was always neat. He was um, uh, somebody who talked about team all the time. Uh, and that's the big difference here uh, that I think uh, really needs to get across was that Claude Coates viewed himself as part of a team of people, of talented artists and technicians that did these attractions. And he wasn't the, you know, verbose um, person out front uh, tooting their own horn all the time, like some of the other Imagineers, you know, and, and, and we, we've talked about this, uh, Alan and I have, and I've had conversations with other people. When you've got a group of artists together, you have a group of people with outsized egos, you know, uh, artists in general, have uh, larger larger egos. It's just the way it is. Uh, and some of those artists manage their egos better than others. And, and that's, you know, really how I would phrase it. Um, Claude was an incredible artist. 
incredible. The body of work that he produced over that 54 years is mind boggling and staggering. Uh, and uh, to uh, uh, have that kind of talent uh, and to be grounded the way he was is really marvelous. It really is. And he was an incredibly giving individual. Uh, he was always mentoring individuals. He was always conscious of the next generation of Imagineers that were going to be coming in. Uh, and that's really, I think, his legacy uh, to some degree. Would you agree, Alan? Well, uh, yes, I would agree. And I'd also add that uh, I don't know how dapper a dresser he was, because I saw him with a hard hat on many, many times. <laughs> Traping through the mud in Florida when I first got there, there wasn't much pavement. The place was really a muddy mess. And he was out there. And you see, the thing about Claude was he was called a prototypical Imagineer. He'd see the whole project through from concept all the way through through construction, through pre-operations, through maintenance. He was on top of it the whole time. So if he got dirty, he didn't care because he had to be there to make sure everything was working the way he wanted it to work, the way Walt would have wanted it to work. So uh, he was on site a lot. He spent a lot of time at Disneyland and a lot of time in the mud in Florida. And, you know, the, the thing I would say, though, is that when I met him at the Imagineering Commissary, I mean, he was well-dressed. He was sharp-looking. He really was. And if you look at the um, uh, submarine voyage chapter, uh, the the opening photograph in that chapter, you can see Claude down in a drained lagoon and he's got a sports jacket on everybody else. They're, you know, in work clothes and everything. He's got a sports jacket on. So, you know, to me, uh, he, he just was, uh, 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 you know, I think a great uh uh, individual from the standpoint that he presented himself well. Um, at least that's my impression uh, when I met him and all the times I sat with him at the Imagineering Commissary. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, the fact that he was as grounded as he was is really a testament to his character. Yes, and, and another quality that came through was his uh I mean, creativity would be a, a very generic term, but I would also say very tenacious um, in terms of thinking outside the box, rising to the occasion, paint an 18 foot high background for a, a fantasy land mural. Okay, I'll do it. Um, in the case of Space Station X-1, a relatively short lived attraction, but um, he and Peter Ellenshot tasked to create a view of Earth from many miles up, but there had been no image of what the planet looked like from space. We'll make it happen. In terms of uh, the, Grand, uh, the Grand Canyon diorama, and I mean, the longest and largest diorama in the world. Okay, let's make it happen. It, it's amazing how, how he really pushed himself and, and worked with people who were willing to, to put in the effort for whatever the task called for. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, uh, and I think, you know, have again, 
Alan and I both work for the company. And I think when you're there for the period of time, the, you know, a long period of time, the way we were and the way Claude was, um, you, you almost get ingrained in you to think uh, not about, uh, it, it is thinking outside the box, but it is, it, it is asking the question, how can we do it? where oftentimes most people out on the street are conditioned to say, we can't do it. You know, uh, how many times have you been in situations where somebody says, no, that can't be done. We can't do that. Where you sit there and go, well, wait a second, how could we do it? Is there a way we could do that? Uh, and I think that's part of the thinking that goes into these kinds of uh, projects, attractions, theme parks. The thinking is um, not, we can't do something. How do we do it? So come up with these great concepts the way Walt did and then figure out how to do it. Yes. Um, when I was uh, doing concept work for Epcot in Tokyo Disneyland, I kept everything. And some of the stuff I wrote and developed was, I thought was really bad, but I kept it. And nobody ever said, Alan, this is terrible. They said, well, why don't we, let's do it this way. That's what Walt used to say. He didn't say, no, I don't like that. He'd say, well, what if we did it this way? He was always looking at things in a positive viewpoint. And so that's, you know, we all tried to be that way. Dad was certainly positive. And you, there are no bad ideas. You, you, I kept everything and we shared stuff. And people, I developed stuff that I said to myself, I said, I think that, I think I thought of that first, but I would never say that to anybody because, you know, we all shared ideas. And that's what dad did. He never took a lot, he never took credit. He said, I signed my name on paintings, but I wouldn't want my name on the Pirates of the Caribbean. Nobody cares who I am anyway. And no one got individual credit. They but, all work but, together as a team, right, Dave? We make yeah, that very strongly. And, and that that's the that's the key here is that it was a team of people uh, and on Pirates of the Caribbean or uh, Haunted Mansion or, you know, Adventure Through Inner Space or any of the other attractions that he did. He might have been the team captain, a captain. You know, he was the team captain leading everybody, the show designer, the guy that, that sort of had the the overview of the entire attraction. But underneath were, you know, scores of uh, craftsmen and artists and technicians uh, all working together. Uh, and Claude was the conductor of that construction orchestra and design orchestra, if you will. Uh, he, he was conducting it. If you, you want to look at it that way, you know? Yeah, that's a, a fabulous description. Uh, I know that there was a lot to pack in the book um, because there was, I mean, it just, I felt like if it reached this good balance between um, a lot of great narrative and, and prose and all that, and certainly complemented by um, the artistry, the photographs. What what didn't make the cut? And also importantly, what was the most interesting artifact that you uncovered throughout this process, Alan and Dave, that maybe didn't make the book? 
Well, I mean, naturally, because I, I had spent a large portion of my career at the company in the animation unit, I, w I would have loved to have expanded more on his animation uh, portion of his career. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we had to be judicious. Uh, and again, I think you used the right word. We had a balance. Uh, we wanted to make sure we had a lot of visuals, uh, but at the same time, we wanted to support it with, uh, uh, with text. Uh, that told uh, different behind the scenes stories that uh, people might not, not have been aware of or, or heard before. And I think we accomplished that. Um, you know, oftentimes when you do a book with a publisher, uh, the publisher, uh, you know, feeds a bunch of stuff into a spreadsheet and says, you can only have X number of pages and it can only have this kind of cover and it can only be this. And there's so many photos and only so many can be in color and the rest have to be black and white. You know, the, there's all these things that they're plugging in. Uh, we, we essentially uh, uh, looked at this project and, and sort of said loosely, you know, well, I think it'll be 200 pages. Well, it filtered out to be 264 pages. Uh, and we were fine with that uh, because we felt as though um, the, the page count had to be driven by the story itself. Uh, and that was the important thing here. So we, we, we were able to, to do this book um, from, from a storytelling standpoint and, and from an artistic standpoint, you know, as a, as a creator, um, I, I want to make sure that I, I'm not giving, giving myself enough rope to hang myself with. But uh, at the same time, I don't want to be boxed in where I can't add, you know, a, another signature if I needed it, you know, and for the listening audience, a signature is 16 pages. Uh, in printing terms, they talk in uh, with books in signatures. Uh, so you have to have some multiple of eight or 16 uh, to create your book. But uh, I can remember pleading for uh, an extra signature on my Oswald book and they were like, nope, can't do it, you know? And I had the material to, that I could have filled in that 16 pages with, which I think the, you know, the fans would have loved. But, you know, again, uh, that, that was then, this is now. So um, I, and, and as far as, there was a lot of surprising uh, uh, stories that Alan conveyed. Uh, certainly uh, the NASA trip, uh, there was some interesting backstories there, especially with Claude sitting in a chair in, in, in the uh, uh, football stadium uh, where uh, President Johnson had sat. Uh, and there was a funny little story about that. Uh, and, uh, and the U.S. Air Force uh, uh, artist uh, that came out of left field. Uh, and, you know, again, I, I mentioned earlier, we, you know, there was some discussion as to whether it included or not. But I felt it was important to include it uh, because, again, all of those experiences that the artists have uh, do filter through on future projects. Alan? Alan? Yeah. Alan, how about for you? What were, were there any distinct photographs or pieces of artwork from your father's that you were really excited to have found for this project? Uh, yeah, I did find some really cool stuff going through my my files and old boxes, and you know how people keep stuff. I just focus on Disney history, and I'd come across something and say, "Oh, this is 
this is great. I got to scan this and send it to Dave. And and sometimes he'd say, well, I'll file and think about it. Or sometimes he'd say, oh, that's great. Yeah, we can use this and maybe develop something around that. So it was a collaboration of of my finding a lot of material that, that hadn't been seen before and passing it along. And Dave said, yeah, yeah, we can use that or or not. It, it really depends, like he said, it depends on telling the story properly and not getting bogged down in, in, in material that uh, is, is not necessary or pertinent to what we're talking about. So I think uh, I don't have any problems. I think we told a pretty good story. We could have gone on for volumes, actually. I mean, a career of 54 and a half years and people have mentioned, well, gee, you're not gonna talk about Epcot and Tokyo and Paris and they said, well, no, no, just, you know, we have a structure here that's very good and it's very specific about the man and what he did with Walt Disney, with Walt, with Walt still being there, except the dramatic ending is Walt's gone and they do the Haunted Mansion with, with, without Walt. So that, there's a very good story structure, a story arc there with the World's Fair up in the middle of it, so to speak. So I think the book is laid out. It's not a textbook biography. It's very well balanced between text and photos and paintings, artwork. I think it, it, it just came out beautiful. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're very, very pleased and very proud of this book and, uh, and really can't wait to get it out into the hands of, uh, of those early supporters who pre-ordered the book two years ago because uh, they're the first ones that are actually going to get their copies of the book. Uh, and, uh, and then we have some signed copies that are available through the publishing web website and, and then finally the book actually releases on November 16th. If people want to get it at their local bookstore or, uh, the online book retailers. Uh, and so, uh, if anybody's interested in ordering, uh, a, uh, a, a copy signed by Alan and myself, uh, they can go to the oldmillpress.com, and I'm sure Brett, you'll put that into your show notes. The oldmillpress.com, uh, and they can order the book, and they'll actually get the book. Uh, I think uh, probably uh, three or four weeks before it actually releases. Fingers crossed. I and I have to say that because of this pandemic that we've we're kind of coming out the back end of uh, the supply chains are still disrupted. Uh, and it's it's really amazing. Uh, some things are taking longer than others uh, to to get here. Uh, but we have our fingers crossed that they're starting to get get back to normal uh, at the ports. But 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 the port of Los Angeles has been particularly uh, backed up. Um, I know on my 3D Disneyland book, uh, there was a container ship with the, the book was in a container. Uh, there was pallets of books and uh, it sat anchored off of Long Beach, California for a month before it was wow. able to become, before it came into a berth and was offloaded. But, you know, so our fingers are crossed. Uh, we're, we're shooting for uh, the end of September for those books to be delivered. Uh, so uh, people give us good thoughts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All the all the good vibes and um, and certainly you beat me to the punch in terms of how how readers can potential readers and soon to be readers can get a hold of the book. I, I would like to conclude with one 
question for each of you. Um, Alan, your father was honored as a Disney legend months before his passing. Yes. What did that what did that mean to him? And ultimately, what does that mean to you? Well, of course, that was early on when they were giving out legend awards and dad had worked directly with Walt Disney and he I'm, I'm sure he was very much honored. Of course he would be. And uh, that award would sit on the mantle, of course, if and uh, our family was there and um, it was a, you know, a very fine honor. In the early days of the uh, Disney uh, Legend Awards, now they're giving them out every year and have been for since 1987. So he was one of the first re early recipients of that award. When you put your handprints in cement in front of the studio theater, <laughs> that was kind of cool to see that happen, along with Gus Parker and Julie Andrews and, and, and Mary Blair. Oh, no, not Mary. She wasn't even there then, unfortunately. Uh, she had passed on, but uh, she was one of the honorees. So it was a wonderful ceremony, of course. And dad said a few words and he said, I enjoyed every minute of it. Those 54 years, I didn't regret a thing. Very poignant. And, and Dave, for you, in thinking about what you hope readers take away from this book about Claude as not only an amazing Imagineer, but certainly as conveyed a really generous and good person. What do you hope they, what do you hope readers come away with after reading this book about Claude as a, as a person? I, I, I think, you know, uh, I think you said it in a nutshell. I, I want people to understand that Claude was one of the key Imagineers uh, handpicked by Walt Disney to help build Disneyland. And, uh, and he had his hand in some of the most iconic attractions the world has ever seen. In fact, those attractions have been uh, essentially translated around the world. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, you know, you can ride that all around the world, um, you know, uh, but he was the show designer of that attraction, which, by the way, was one of his favorite attractions. It was one of his favorite projects that he worked on. Uh, we have a wonderful piece of art uh, by Exitensio, another Imagineer that uh, that they did uh, that he did for Claude's 50th anniversary with the company, and uh, and he you know it's it's Mickey with a pirate hat on and a parrot on his shoulder, and and, and it's it sort of says you know get, get guess what his favorite attraction was you know it's like congratulations on fifty years guess what his favorite attraction was well you know it, it's you know those kinds of things that uh, give insight you know really for the fans uh, people who love Disneyland and and the Disney parks around the world are going to get out of this book a lot of behind the scenes information, backstories to a lot of these iconic attractions. And, you know, when you love something so much, you want to know more about it. You want to get those little tidbits of information on, you know, why something was done the way it was done. Uh, and, and I think that's what people are going to walk away with. They're also going to be able to, to see that he was an incredible artist. Uh, we have a gallery of his paintings at the back of the book, uh, which, which was always a given. We had to do that. 
we wanted to show a progression of his artistic talent and his painting style from the 1930s through the 1980s and uh and the the reader is going to be able to enjoy that and and take a look at that uh and and hopefully walk away uh knowing him that much more and the fact that he really was one of those key people uh, involved in the park again the book is called claude Coates: walt disney's imagineer the making of disneyland from toad hall to the haunted mansion and beyond dave and alan it's been a great pleasure um, i'm excited to see um, all the the good uh, press i imagine will emerge from the book's release um, and certainly being in the hands of of people it's um it's a, it's a fantastic read about an equally fantastic person thank you both very much thank you thank brett you. for having us on appreciate it thank you brett and thank you again to dave and alan for being on notably disney to discuss this quite incredible book as you could tell i was extremely enthused and it's very true this is one that you will want to own uh, and, and pre-order um, as mentioned the book is scheduled to debut in november it is being published by the old mill press the title once again claude Coates, walt disney's imagineer the making of disneyland from toad hall to the haunted mansion and beyond uh, and i also want to illustrate um, as you sometimes listen to podcasts and you know that the hosts may have advanced copies or review copies of titles um, this is a very common practice i do want to very much indicate that that in no way biased uh, my interpretation of the book i really think it honors claude it offers a really cool glimpse into the early days of Disneyland and Walt Disney Imagineering that I have not seen before and complements a lot of other existent work. There is imagery and there are stories within that you will not find elsewhere. So highly encourage you to check it out and pick up a copy um, in advance and or once it is released. Thank you again and hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company. 